Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. According to last week, this week is meant to be the moment of truth. Is it? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. Hello, it's Catherine, the podcast producer, normally heard in ad breaks and outtakes. Just to say that this extra episode was recorded a few hours before the Speaker of the House, John Burko, made his surprise ruling that the expected third meaningful vote on Theresa May's deal can't go ahead if it remains substantially the same. As the situation unfolds over the next day or so, we'll do our best, of course, to add to episodes already planned. But as always, we like to take a breath and have a think before gathering the team to record. For once, it is not Wednesday morning, it is Monday lunchtime, and I'm here with Helen Thompson. Part of the reason we're doing this is Helen's not around later this week, when we would normally touch base with her and find out what we think is really going on. We also recorded last week's one after the first of the sequence of votes, motions and amendments. And I wanted to catch up with Helen just to get a sense of where we are now, because we won't hear from her for a while. Of course, we don't know where we are any more than we normally do. But there is something slightly different about doing this on a Monday than a Wednesday, as we normally do. Because what seems to have happened, and maybe this is a pattern that repeats itself, is at the end of last week, it looked like we were getting to some real clarity around the choices. And then people go away for the weekend. Some of them appear on the Mar program. Most of them read the newspapers like everyone else. They tweet. They give interviews. They make more statements that they're going to find it hard to climb down from. And whatever disciplining device had worked its way to a head by the end of Friday just starts to unravel a bit. And it looks like, at least it looks to me like, and genuinely this is Monday lunchtime, we don't even know if there's going to be a vote tomorrow. We don't know what the DUP are going to do. But we'll take a step back here. It looks like the pattern in a way is that what happens when people are given time after the point where it looks like a choice will finally be forced on them is from all sides of this argument, they find another reason why the choice might just possibly be delayed. And the complication is those people include the Prime Minister. Even what she had done last week with the government motion that finally got through, and I I was very conscious last week I got my motions and amendments mixed up, but that final motion that passed, which said there is a choice here, you pass my deal, we get a technical extension, you don't pass my deal, and who knows what happens that who knows what happens also gives Theresa May some wriggle room. It does to an extent, but I think it it does... The one one great unknown, I think, that all the the people trying to make calculations about this face is is what actually is the EU27 going to do? And the choices that they have to make between a technical extension, if they were pretty confident that the withdrawal agreement was going to pass and then we were talking about the, the, the necessary legislation that comes after that will be, will, will be okay. Um, but what do you do if that isn't the case? And how do you think about this question, not only in relation to their 
own individual interests as governments. But how do you think about that in relation to the position of the European Parliament elections? And that once you get past a certain date, the legal requirement that Britain is going to participate in them. And as I've said before, is that we've seen a reasonable amount of EU consensus about quite some tricky issues thus far, but I'm not clear that there is an EU consensus about what to do about the possibility of that extension, the, the longer extension. And if there's no clarity there, then I think it's quite hard for our political actors to get to a point where they really are forced to choose once and for all. And that seems to be one of the things that's happening at the moment, which is because we don't know even on Thursday what might happen at the European Council and the possibility that Theresa May goes to that not armed with um, a parliamentary vote of approval for her deal. That allows some people, so Boris Johnson is the one who's done it most recently, to say we're not at the end game yet because we don't know where we are until we know whether the Europeans still might budge. And he also seems to be, and this may distinguish him from, say, Jacob Rees-Mogg, seems to be hardening his position on the question of whether if we do agree to Theresa May's version of the withdrawal agreement, what we have signalled to the Europeans is that we are a pushover. I mean, I take it in a way that looks like it's his bottom line, which is regardless of the merits or demerits of the deal, what he hates is the thought that in the end, they will have won. And it's I don't think he's quite saying this, but it's almost like he's saying, and I don't want to be Prime Minister on those terms. I think it's I think it's very difficult to take what Boris Johnson is saying at the moment at face value when it comes to the actual decisions about the withdrawal agreement and leaving the European Union. Because he not, does want to be Prime Minister. Because he does want to be Prime Minister. Even on those terms. So that the arguments are subservient to the position that he's trying to get to within the internal politics of the Conservative Party and that he wants to be the primary candidate of the ERG, or the, the hardest line anyway, of the ERG um, group. And he's in a contest with Dominic Raab um, for that. And one of the Prime Minister's problems, I think, is is that she needs both of those to move simultaneously if they're going to move at all. And yet the incentive for them to do so, given that one of them will supposedly get an advantage uh, if they don't move, is, is, is difficult to, to bring that about. Having said that, I do think that Boris Johnson is in a a difficult position in this respect, in that if other people led by Jacob Rees-Mogg move, and particularly if the DUP move and bring some more other than what Jacob Rees-Mogg might bring by himself, and he's left sort of leader of a group of like 25 Conservative backbenchers, then that isn't a basis on which to launch a leadership bid for the Conservative Party. He becomes part of too small a minority in order not to be a problem for the people who've then voted for the um, agreement, particularly if, if that group is still a large enough group to act as a veto player for the withdrawal agreement um, going through. But I, I don't think we should take the substantive positions that he says that seriously at the moment, not least because it was pretty clear if we looked at what was going on at the end of last week that he was quite close to backing the agreement himself. So what does happen over the weekend? <laughs> where, do, where, where do they go? Who do they talk to? Um, it's almost like you have to keep them in Westminster, and yet... I think that if you looked at some of the the, the backbench Conservative MPs who, who committed themselves over the weekend and said things that are basically look like they're going to now vote for the withdrawal agreement, 
The message there seemed to be is that there has been some shift of opinion amongst Conservative voters and to some extent amongst some members at least of constituency associations in favour of the agreement. Not necessarily amongst the members that that's become a majority position but become it's become more of a large minority um, position. So I think something is about they go back and talk to their constituencies associations and pick some sense out of what's going on outside um, Westminster. I suspect there as well that, I mean, this is just pure speculation, or, you know, like on my part, take you, take them outside um, Westminster. And in terms of what's going on, in terms of the internal manoeuvring within the party about the party leadership um, question, is that becomes much more fraught. And do they not, any of them, take them outside Westminster and get to see it like we see it, which is, it doesn't look good? Well, there's an interesting um, piece by BMF Alami, who's a Conservative MP who's been on um, two weeks paternity leave. And he's written a piece in The Times this morning about what it looks like when you're in Westminster all the time and then suddenly you're not there for two weeks. And his verdict seems to be that it, it looks like absolute madness and it's very difficult to comprehend from the outside what actually is going on. Even when you're in the inside, it makes some kind of political sense. So if we do take a step back, I just want to ask you, let's just forget about what might be going on in the internal dynamics of the Conservative Party and its various candidates to lead it in future. Is there any merit in the argument, which is the the hard Brexiteer argument, that to agree to Theresa May's deal is to hand a victory to the people with whom we will have to negotiate the details of our future arrangement? And it does signal to them, relatively speaking, that we are a pushover. So that's, I think that's their bottom line that they, they, they need more than the DUP to sign up or Geoffrey Cox to change his advice. They need from the Europeans a signal that on some questions, we won. Maybe that, maybe that is their position. I'm not sure whether, it, whether, I mean, clearly if you took Boris Johnson at face value, that seemed to be what he was saying. But that all does depend or that interpretation depends on putting the worst possible interpretation on what has thus far happened including the shift from the Northern Ireland backstop the backstop was only applied to Northern Ireland to the the backstop applying to the United Kingdom now in order to believe what they believe I think you have to say you, you have to be convinced that the UK wide backstop is an act of deliberate malevolence on the part of the European Union that's been concocted to um, keep Britain in a permanent um, customs union and it's been knowingly done for that purpose. It doesn't really allow any judgment to be made about what the EU 26, so minus islands, interests are in relation um, to that and what price that they might pay for maintaining the backstop over a substantial period um, of time. So the whole argument of we must demonstrate that we win about something relies on the interpretation that there wasn't some kind of victory actually in the UK-wide backstop. And yet they genuinely don't see it like that. And it's, I think it's partly because when we talked about this last week, everyone is tweeting, everyone has a view. Every time something happens, everyone has a view. This includes all of the actors on the European side too. So not just the chief negotiators, not just uh, people like Barnier, but national governments as well. There is this kind of choreographed effect because they have an outcome that they're trying to get to as well, which is to avoid no deal. And so they signal quite clearly that they're happy with this arrangement. This is the only arrangement on the table. They sound like people who believe that this works pretty well for them. And you can see why they would sound like that, because they're trying to get a result. And yet it has the opposite effect. 
but I do feel each time we get to one of these kind of crunch points and then we defer it, part of the choreographing on the European side is unhelpful too. No, I agree. I'm not saying they shouldn't do it. <laughs> because it would be no, weird I, not I to. I agree. I think that the, the thing is, is that, that this question about what the future is likely to be like and how the European Union is likely to behave in the future towards Britain is a really difficult question to think about. Now, you can have all kinds of views, strong opinions one way and the other about what Britain's membership of the European Union has entailed over time. We saw it in action for long periods of time. We saw it in action those of us who are old enough, you know, before we get to the issues generated by the Maastricht Treaty and um, Britain's non-participation in the Euro, and we saw it in action since then, we saw it in action during the Eurozone crisis. So you can kind of sort of think through, okay, under these conditions, um, certain tensions develop between um, Britain and the European Union at certain points, they can enter, or they've got the potential to enter um, crisis. But none of us have actually got any clear way drawing on experience to think about what the backstop is going to involve and what the political calculations of both our government and the EU27 are going to be that, particularly in a context in which there is so much general geopolitical turbulence going on and there are really hard questions that the EU and us have to um, confront. So it always seems to me a little bit kind of like, how could you possibly know what you're making on either side, these you know, grand claims about oh, this is such a victory for the EU or this is such a humiliation for... Um, Britain, I know those are two sides of the same um, argument, because we're not really in a position to judge. None of us are in a position to judge. So is that, I mean, is it possible that's the absolutely fundamental difficulty, the reason this has proved so hard, which is everyone is negotiating on the basis of expectations that draw on past experience about something which is fundamentally unknown. Um, and the unknown bit of it doesn't give people confidence. You, know, you used to hear from the Brexiteers this line, what, what happened to our confidence in the future? What happened to our belief that we could make this deal work for us. What happened to faith in global Britain, blah, blah, blah. You don't hear any of that from them anymore. You never hear them. They sound like the ones who think you know, the future is stacked against them. Absolutely. I think that there is this paradox here because on the one hand, their position relies, or a good part of their position, relies on the notion that the Theresa May's government has um, conducted a completely incompetent negotiation that should never have got into the position of accepting any kind of principle of the backstop going back to December 2017. It should have been lots more confrontational about what they see the cards that Britain has got to play, not least the security um, card. Now, if you think that is the case, then these things, particularly the security card issue, come back into play once you don't have Theresa May as Prime Minister and the negotiations are happening about a trade agreement and the economic um, future. So I cannot see why, if you think that the security argument could have been used in the first set of negotiations, why you think the tra the security card can't be used in order to escape the backstop. And why this is a cynical thing to say, you don't hear so much anymore of the, the cake and eat it argument that Boris Johnson and others used to come up with. But there is a version of it, which is, if you're a hard Brexiteer, you can have your cake and eat it. Because you can have Brexit, and on the terms of this withdrawal agreement, you can blame everything in the future on it. So you can also have your permanent grievance, which is the thing that has motivated many of them all the way through. As people have said, and I don't think this is excessively cynical, it is a mode of politics that is most comfortable feeling that essentially you've been betrayed. So you can have Brexit plus betrayal. I know Theresa May can't say to them, look, I'm offering <laughs> you your perfect package, Brexit plus well, they can permanent have, betrayal. They, but they can have three things. They can have Brexit plus permanent betrayal they, and they can have Theresa May's head as well. 
Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So let's just do another step back thing because, again, we're not in the business of trying to predict what's going to happen this week. But last week we also saw... And again, after we recorded, particularly on Wednesday, so Wednesday night was where this was most acute, this kind of fraying of cabinet collective responsibility, these, these remarkable votes, motions and amendments, where the government did try and whip on some of them and the, the members of the cabinet did not um, follow the government position and yet they remained in the cabinet. And we are told, and again, this came out in the newspapers over the weekend, various leaks from the, the final cabinet of the week, the political cabinet, where Theresa May said, among other things, there needs to be no more leaks from this cabinet. So 20 minutes later, we discovered what was said. She was furious. She was furious with the, the remain members, remainer members of her cabinet who had disobeyed the government's line on the Wednesday night vote. And she's reported to have said, when this is all over we are going to need to reassert that discipline. So there are two things about that. It's possible that she believes she will be there to do it. But the other is, is this doing permanent damage? Or at least is this setting precedents that will be very hard to unpick that will change the basic dynamics of British constitutional government? Is it true after a week like last week that collective cabinet responsibility is not what it was? I think this is another thing that's not really particularly easy to think about. I mean, clearly the, the EU has raised really difficult questions of cabinet collective responsibility before, the EC as it then was. I mean, Wilson had to suspend it during the first referendum for the Labour cabinet in, in 1975. So, Some of Major's bastards were in the cabinet, yeah, weren't they? three of them were in the cabinet. So I think that we can say that this issue poses severe problems for the principle and has done over a, over a long period of time. And it's clearly amplified in this case by the fact that we're talking about a minority government um, and not just a minority government, but a minority government that's dependent on a party uh, who come from a part of the United Kingdom whose future is most at issue in regard to the withdrawal um, agreement. So in constitutional terms, these are you know a very specific set of... Um, Circumstances, so and, I, and you kind of feel last week was unique in the recent history of British politics. I mean, I know we've sort of had lots of weeks like yeah. that, but I can't remember anything like that series. Those those three nights of series no. of motions and amendments, and and the kind of fraying of everything around it. I think the thing we can't go back to after all this is over, if it ever is over, um, is it, some is the is in some ways the constitutional innocence that we've that we've had before of thinking that these constitutional questions are somewhat you know like arcane or for the people who are really interested in politics in some sense in some sense geekish questions i think the that idea is is completely busted 
um, by what's happened. Not just actually because of the kinds of parliamentary drama that we're seeing um, played out, but because I think in retrospect we can see how some of these other constitutional changes had so many unintended consequences, whether that be devolution or the fixed-term Parliament Act. We will all have to think, if we want to think about politics, much harder about the ways in which British politics constitutionally works. But is it also possible that Europe is one of the things that over a long period of time has put real pressure on some of these basic principles of British constitutional government. But as you said, you've said recently, we're also in a period that is of, there's a tendency towards minority or coalition government, not necessarily, but it could be that the age of big majorities is over. This is partly to do with the fracturing of the different um, nations of the United Kingdom and the rise of nationalist parties as well. That also puts a lot of strain. This system has tended to work in the modern era on the basis of majority governments. And say in future we're not going to have so many of those. And what we've learned in the last week is that weak minority governments under this system are very frightened of disciplining members of their cabinet because of the fear that the government will fall. Lessons will be learned and the lessons that will be learned will include that we can get away with it. Possibly. Possibly. I think... I think Although we have more leverage. We have leverage inside the cabinet. Because it used to be that the Prime Minister's leverage was he or she could fire anyone. And Theresa May doesn't, hasn't been able to fire people. I, I, th- I think that you are going to get in a position, if, you go, if we're going to have uh, the norm is, normal politics is going to be minority government. We're going to see that it's more difficult for Prime Ministers to, to fire people. I wonder, though, whether there isn't something else going on. And that is, is that it's it's something to do with a political psychology that's been let loose by the referendum, where everybody, and whether they be politicians or indeed many voters, have got now an elevated sense of the importance of their own opinion. And I think this is partly what we've seen in terms of this, you know, constitutionally bizarre idea that Parliament could somehow negotiate Brexit is clearly, as you said, I think it was last week, is, is in our constitutional system that is not possible. The executive is responsible for negotiating um, with um, other governments and Parliament's role is either to accept what is negotiated and put it into law or to bring down the it, government. Or to bring down the, yeah, which means bringing down um, the government. It's not to conduct the negotiations um, itself. So there's all kinds of things which I think that the referendum has somehow let loose out there that um, mean that different people are trying to claim authority that they don't actually have. Now, whether if we when we can get past not the political resolution of whether Britain is in the European Union or not, but past this particular moment and a decision one way or another is taken, whether that kind of dissipates away and we go back to some sense of like what the executive does and what the legislatures do and what voters do. I mean, that would be an interesting question to see how long it takes us to come down, if you like, from this referendum moment. Do you think that these things are precedents? I mean, is that actually a category mistake to think that you know, under our... It's not people say we don't have a, a written constitution. We do. It's just written in lots of different places. We don't have a codified constitution. We don't have one place you can go to. Parliament is sovereign. It can keep adding to and changing these constitutional arrangements. Um but there is sort of often a feeling in British politics because it's not exactly known what the limits of constitutional government are. These moments where we see politicians behaving in ways that they are not meant to encourages people to feel that this is the new normal. You joke that you know, if this ever ends, <laughs> um, 
even if this ends and this will end this Brexit this phase of Brexit is it possible that this way of doing politics won't end that we are actually we, we are seeing a kind of fraying fraying of the two-party system fraying of various notions of collective accountability and responsibility and though people won't say well they did it in that week in 2019 so I'm going to do it but this is a kind of beginning of an unraveling of this way of, of doing democracy I think that there's some potential that that is the case certainly I think there's another way of, of um, thinking about it which is is that what you get and I think that the, the British constitutional system is actually you know like very prone to this because of the as you say the way in which it works without having a, a single codified document that is the constitution but having these various constitutional documents and um, practices in the end constitutional struggles are political struggles about who is going to exercise power and different constitutional approaches benefit different groups in that competition for power over others and in one sense what we have I think at the moment is something where that fundamental question of who has power where does the, um, the balance lie between the not just the different political parties but different groups in society that uh, engage with the political parties is up in the air and at a certain point I think as the EU question not is resolved as I say because I don't think it can be resolved for a long um, time but a decision is taken then the fallout in terms of where power lies as a consequence of Britain leaving the European Union will be clearer and then in some sense that will become the new norm against which there will be a political uh, reaction but we won't have tumult in the way which we have at the moment about that question. One last thing in this context something that I've really been struck by is that there are so many different people and voices and opinions involved in Brexit it's such a nightmare so many different factions have to be squared off against each other all these people seem to have a kind of veto power often on a very flimsy basis not just the DUP but many others it's a complete mess and yet so much turns as we approach whatever the denouement one's going to be on this very weak prime minister it's so much about her and actually as we get nearer to the end the really consequential choices will be hers um, and she's probably going to have to make some very hard personal decisions about what she is and isn't willing to bear personally if this is or isn't going to go through and we've talked about this a bit there are two sides to her personality and we've touched on one but I think the other is worth mentioning too it picks up on what she may have said at that meeting on Friday where she apparently let rip or went batshit crazy I think someone said with the Remainers in her cabinet so she's a very dutiful Prime Minister she has a strong sense of duty she's a true conservative both big and small c um, I think she has quite a lot of faith in Britain's constitutional arrangements she's also vengeful so we've seen that when she became Prime Minister, the first things she did were not dutiful or small-c conservative things. They were acts of vengeance directed against George Osborne, particularly someone she'd never forgiven for a series of confrontations that went back years. Michael Gove as well. She's since, to an extent, made it up with Michael Gove. She certainly hasn't made it up with George Osborne. She may need to sacrifice herself out of a sense of duty. She will be reluctant to do it because I believe among other things she she sees that this will be unfinished business unless she is allowed at least some redisciplining 
after it's over. And that's the thing that gives me pause. That's the thing that makes me feel like she's, I don't think she's at all clear yet what the the final point for her is where she has to basically sacrifice herself. I don't think she's there yet. I don't think that she's there either for the reasons that um, that you say and that um, clearly for her one of the things that's gone on through this is the expression of her contempt in many ways for what Osborne in particular but to some extent David Cameron represented within the um, Conservative Party and I think if you look at her management of the party by far the biggest mistake that she made is to pick at the beginning of uh, of her um, decision-making choices about personnel, to decide that to make Boris Johnson foreign secretary while she was sacking Michael Gove from her cabinet. I mean, Michael Gove has shown that he has been her ally ultimately, you know, over this and been a lot better communicator in terms of trying to deliver this deal for her than she's been, and yet he was the one that she threw out, and Boris Johnson whose you know, motivations, I think, have been pretty primarily focused on himself and being leader of the Conservative Party since the beginning of all this is the one she decided to back. That, that seems to me to have been a terrible um, misjudgment. But I think it came out of that place, as you said, about she thought that Gove represented that part of the party that had gone with um, Osborne, in, in which she's contemptuous about. And I think you used to use that phrase where she used to say, what was it, something like, politics isn't sport or politics isn't... Politics isn't a game. Politics, yeah. isn't, politics isn't a game. And I think there is a part of her that will think that the, her, the fact that she does have to sacrifice herself, and I don't think there's any doubt that she does have to sacrifice herself, is a demand of the game that she doesn't want to to give. On the other hand, it's then a question about whether her sense of duty is ultimately going to triumph over that. Because the legacy, if she doesn't sacrifice herself, is is that she will have to bear quite a bit of the responsibility for, or in all likelihood, for Brexit not happening, or at least being ex- delayed for a very long period of time. So it's not a game, is it a tragedy? Is her story a tragic one? I think that there's... Um, there's an element of tragedy to it but I think in order for it to be tragic that she has to make the sacrifice As I mentioned Helen won't be here later in the week though we will catch up with her before too long we're going to be talking of course we can't get away from it about Brexit but also we're going to be talking more about European politics this week Chris Bickerton and Lucia Rubinelli are going to be with us in our regular slot to update us on Italian politics French politics and where Brexit fits into something other than just our obsession with it. We've also got an extra episode coming out with David Wallace-Wells talking about the uninhabitable Earth, the terrifying bestseller about climate change. Please join us for all that. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. My name is David Runciman. I've been to the dentist today. <laughs> That's the outtakes. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 